Yeah, I'm Dan Washer from uh, the United States. I'm representing uh, Issacus as the chair of the uh, Dearthroplasty Committee. Um, and I wanted to welcome uh, all the participants and to encourage them to uh, submit abstracts for the Issacus meeting, which will be held in Munich, Germany, uh, June 9th to 11th in 2025, and to uh, put that on everyone's calendar. Uh, some upcoming uh, Issacus events. We have an online uh, webinar, uh, March 21st, uh, Parenting and Orthopedics. Uh, we have a combined webinar with Anna and Issacos, a knee and shoulder lab course uh, in Doral, Florida, April 5th to 6th. And then in uh, 2024, we're going to be having an Issacos knee arthroplasty forum uh, to be held in Kyoto, Japan, October 31st to November 1st. Um, so both Dan and I are going to moderate this and we're going to uh, try, uh, allow for the questions to happen at the end of each session or at the end of the session. So the four speakers are going to present their talks. And we'll take questions and discussion at the end of the four sessions. Um, Please submit your questions as we uh, go along and uh, we'll uh, sort those out as we uh, uh, finish the first four talks. Uh, we've really got a world-class faculty from uh, all around the world. Uh, Dr. Bruno Bellante uh, from uh, Italy, uh, Dr. Gabriel Baron from Santiago, Chile, Dr. Ken Okazaki from uh, Japan, uh, and Dr. Reha Tandugan, uh, from Istanbul, Turkey. And our first speaker will be uh, Dr. Uh, Bruno Volante, uh, talking about personalized, excuse me, patient expectations and outcomes uh, in total knee arthroplasty. Dr. Violante. Thank, thank you so much, Don. Thanks, thanks for your kind uh, uh, presentation. Okay. Thank you very much for this uh, beautiful bridge between uh, SKIC and uh, and uh, Isakos, uh, I'll be very, very happy to be in. And we're looking at what's happening after total knee arthroplasty. We're working a lot about uh, uh, maximize our effort to get patients smiling after surgery, but still we have to uh, cover some topics about which kind of selection is fine to arise our post-op results. So that's my disclosure. And... Uh, uh, we're starting from 1974. It was total condylar knee replacement. This was the classic. So we're starting 50 years later. We still have uh, some troubles about uh, set maximizing the results after total knee arthroplasty. What we can do to get better this beautiful surgery. So uh, not all the patients are the same. We, we know deeply that not all the patients are the same. And uh, we are not reaching uh, at the moment the uh, forgotten hip after surgery. Uh, what we happen, uh, what happening in the last 50 years, uh, that the elderly population is growing a lot. So we have to face with them and uh, this population uh, are looking to have a better results, better functional results, better quality of life. So we're starting from uh, stopping the pain after surgery, and now we have a better clinical and functional outcomes by 80 people, so elderly people. If we give a look to inside the European side, uh, the female uh, prevalence is very high. It's about 68, 69% of the people undergoing TKA. And uh, the people undergoing TKA below 65 years old is uh, around 27%. If we see the Netherlands, around 35%. And the United States is around 43, 44%. So we still have a big discrepancy between uh, different countries. 
So what about the papers? Uh, old papers, 96, they showing only 10% uh, uh, people, people unsatisfied after the TKA. But uh, younger and new presentation and papers, they show that around 25% of people are not satisfied to 20%. We're still having a high percent because uh, the quality of the life that uh, has a high perception by the patient is a change in the last three decades. We still have a, a good answer by Chita Ranawat that the key is choosing the right patients. Maybe this is an answer. And we have a second on the second end to, to, to look into different aspects on the design. So if we look at the papers, there are around five on 27 and more than 15, 2016. So uh, the study level, study level are increasing a lot. So all the people are looking how we can increase the level of satisfaction by the patient. Uh, but if we have the indication for the TKA, we look inside on this 189 clinical TKA study, we still don't have any specific guidelines. Uh, what about uh, the, the best candidate? When is the best time uh, to perform a TKA? Uh, what about the guidelines? If we see the uh, evidence-based clinical practical guidelines that are presented in 22, we still uh, have uh, no recommendation based on PROMS pain level, but still have uh, some indication. So the outcomes, for, for example, worse higher pre-op WOMAC scores is correlated with a greater decrease in WOMAC. And high preoperative Kellgren-Lawrence grades is associated with a better post-op WOM score. This is a good point. We can start from uh, this point. What uh, the patient are expecting of you? This is a fir first question. And the second is what the patients may expect of their knee. So it's so important to have a discussion and talk with the patients and show them that we just change knee. We cannot subvert it or the anatomy. What about the risk factors? Uh, BMI, we have a strength of recommendation about the BMI. We have a quality of the evidence high and evidence for less functional improvement in obese patients. And conflicted data on complication are still uh, emerging on uh, increase of infection about the SSI infection, superficial site infection. Uh, diabetes and hyperglycemia, even on this point, we have a four stars strong level of evidence. So with a higher rate of a complication and greater risk of revision. So this is a very bad point for the patient. What about tobacco? Tobacco increases the risk of a deep infection and implant revision. So we cannot uh, still understand when is the best time for tobacco cessation before elective totalinear arthroplasty. What about the chronic pain? This is a really a risk factor. We don't have evidence, but the chronic lower back pain decreases the functional outcome. We for sure know that. And depression and anxiety, for sure, a second point with the risk factor. Last month, people are struggling about yes or no. But we have uh, the data, they show high revision rate and less functional improvement and the less level of satisfaction by the patient. 
What about the evidence? We have uh, 280 studies that met all inclusion and exclusion criteria, and the majority of the study represent a lower level of the evidence. So we're still having a uh, you know, big window in which we have to close the target. Uh, but if we summarize some point, first, uh, the preoperative anxiety and depression was the most common pre-op predictor of dissatisfaction. Second, the post-operative functional outcome and relief of pain being paramount determinants for achieving patient satisfaction. Third, the virus overall limb alignment and the post-op range of motion affect the patient functional outcome. What we can uh, aspect by technology, pre-navigate knee can improve the surgical technique, MRI or CT scan imaging, computer-generated 3D model of the knee, this technology is running in our OR, but still we have to think about the Carter and Hype cycles. When we started with the PSI technology, we can have a technology trigger, peak of inflected expectation, true of disillusionment, slope or alignment, and the plateau of productivity. So every time we introduce in the market something that can improve the level of quality of our surgery and decrease the level of an unhappy patient, we need expect time. Maybe we have a peak of inflated expectation and then we are through a disillusionment and then we're going up toward the plateau of product productivity. And we still need to uh, find that in uh, PSI surgery and robotic surgery. So the question is, uh, have we already reached the performance limit? Can we realistically expect more of the technology I don't know, but uh, if we look into the wide total knee arthroplasty fail today, the early failing out of the infection, the most important is the loosening, so instability. And that's so important. Maybe we have to find something more new alignment that looking for a stable knee instead of unstable knee. And we need to include the AI technology to the robotic to have more data and uh, have a, a powerful tool to ensure and uh, uh, increase our level of surgery. But we go back on the anatomy and uh, on the tibial design and the femur design and prosthesis design. If you see this uh, paper published by Andriaki, if we put a knee, 45 knee of flexion and we make a displacement of our tibia towards the femur, we can see that we have a displacement and the, the envelope of motion works. What's because the SEL is not involved in this and PCL are not involved and the envelope of motion is responsible of the, the, the stability of the knee. If we go to zero degrees in extension and we see that we reduce a lot the amount of, of, of movement because what happened, the SEL and PCL are working and the envelope is determined by the soft tissue forces but inside by the ACL. So the anatomy looks to the ACL and the PCL are so important, uh, so important uh, stabilizator of the knee in extension and early flexion. So uh, when we do a surgery and we remove the ACL and the PCL, maybe we do something wrong in our knee and it's difficult for the patient to accept it. If we see the abnormal working after the ACL deficient knee, we increase the abnormal kinematics, we decrease the proprioception and the feeling of the knee. We have a quad atrophy and, the pre and, the, and early osteoarthritis. So 
we know that uh, we have to increase even on the design, not only on the, the technology out of the new design. So how does the envelope promotion apply to our dynamic activities is still an open book. So to take on message, diabetes, sensitivity, depression, low back pain, to back represent limitation to degree of patient satisfaction, a prosthetic design with the removal of the ACL and improvement in the OR technology aimed to improving stability represent a further step to improve post-op satisfaction. Thank you. And now it's my pleasure to introduce uh, our colleague, uh, Professor Ken Okazaki for the next, as the next speaker. All right, thank you, Dan. And I'm Ken Okazaki from Tokyo, Japan. I'm going to talk about the personal alignment in TK, what is safe? My disclosures. So this is showing the alignment options of the TKA. The first one is a mechanical alignment classical method. You know, uh, this is the implant is placed to perpendicular to the mechanical axis. The total limb alignment will be straight and we sometimes need a, a ligament release to, releases to balance the knee. So this one is a so-called systematic alignment, which means a target alignment is always same for every single patient. The yellow rubber ones are the personal alignment. The, 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 the final alignment would vary varied, uh, depending on the patient. The representative one is a kinematic alignment, Stephen Howell proposed. As you know, this is a surface replacement method and uh, restore the native joint line. And the final alignment would be constitutional to the patient and the ligament balance would be physiological. And as uh, kinematic alignment would have a risk to create a significant virus or virus, restricted K is pro also proposed, which is uh, the, uh, basically the femur is the same as the kinematic alignment, but for the tibia, surgeon place uh, uh, boundaries for the restriction of the uh, angle of the uh, of the placement. And the uh, final alignment would be within the boundaries uh, such as surgeons uh, decided, such as plus minus three degree and five degrees. And the uh, ligament balance would be close to the physiological, but sometimes imbalanced. The functional alignment is using a computer-assisted surgery to press the implant best match to the morphology and the balance within the boundaries. The final alignment would be within the boundaries surgeons made, and the ligament tension would be balanced. So now I want to Ask ask you guys uh, the question. Please ask the question. What is uh, what alignment technique are you primarily using for TKA? The first one is a neutral mechanical alignment, uh, adjusted mechanical alignment, which is allowing a few degrees balance vargas at a femoral size. Three unrestricted kinematic alignment. Four restricted kinematic alignment, and five functional alignment using a computer assisted surgery. Please answer. So why personal right alignment? Well, the modern TKA improved the implant survival, like uh, more than 90% survival at 30 years. And you know, uh, however, 15% uh, of the patient are not very happy with their depressed needs. And Sebastian Parrett reported that uh, neutral alignment plus my three degree is not a crucial factor 
who survived for 15 years. And Johan Berman reported that there is a lot of variations for alignment of the normal knees. And we may need, uh, we may need uh, ligament releases to correct the constitutional alignment to neutral. All right, here is the answer. Uh, seems like most of the, uh, half of them, half of you are using a neutral mechanical alignment and also using adjusted mechanical alignment. And uh, functional alignment, 15% of functional alignment. Okay, thank you. I want to move next, okay. Okay. So we have uh, personal alignment has some concerns. It may aggravate uh, implant survival. How do we deal with uh, severe virus, virus deformity? Uh, there are racial differences in constitutional alignment, and we need uh, uh, boundaries for safe zone. How to predict a post-operative alignment? How about a patellofemoral problem? And do we need specific implant design? So lots of questions. So is KA clinically better than MA? Well, there are several randomized control trial study, and some of them are telling uh, KA is better. Uh, with uh, uh, patient-reported outcome measures, and the other is telling that no difference with these uh, 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 outcome measures. So it's still controversial. Uh, is case safe for the long-term survivor? The Stephen Howell reported last year, uh, telling that 93% survivor for 16 years by unrestricted KATKA. So in his paper, uh, the total alignment with HK angle looks uh, almost neutral, uh, a little bit vargas. And uh, uh, most of the patients are within plasma three degrees. And uh, only 8% is uh, more than three degree bars. And for the TBS placement, uh, only about thirty-five percent of the patient, uh, uh, the tibia are placed more than three degree bars. So the the if, with the country changes, the result is really change. This is Australian study uh, reporting a hundred percent survival of five years, and when look at their report, the the the, the average. Uh, alignment is uh, a little bit also vargas, and uh, most of them are uh, plus minus three degree uh, alignment, but uh, uh, they have a uh, 20% of the virus alignment more than three degrees. So it looks, it looks for me, it's a, a little bit different from the Asian countries. So are there racial differences or constitutional alignment? Well, to predict the constitutional alignment, CPA classification is useful. Uh, the McDessy reported that in Australia, OA patient, so in the type one virus is 19%, and the most frequent group was type two. But in Japanese report, uh, we have a lots of virus needs. So type one is more than half of the patient was classified as type one. And that MPTA is much smaller in, in Japanese countries. It's, a, it's average, the mean MPTA is 84 degrees. 
So Asian population is more diverse than the Western countries. And CPAC type 1 is 55%. And HK angle is 4, four degree bias. And uh, MPTA is smaller at 84 degrees. So next question is, is it is uh, unrestricted KTK is also safe for the Asian? Well, we have a, a mass center a study of KATK in Japan. It involved eight hospitals, and they have done uh, 2,000, more than 2,000 cases for unrestricted KA for these four, four years. These guys are doing lots of surgeries. So they reported last December that uh, in the final alignment is uh, three degree bars. The median of the HK angle of after surgery is three degree, and the SD was three degree. So it meaning we have fifteen percent of patient more than sixty six six degree bars. So we have a uh, lots of severe bars cases. So they picked up uh, severe bars cases, which means uh preoperative HK angle was more than 15 degrees. They picked up 45 cases from the 200 cases. It was 20% of the cases. This is a preoperative uh, CPAC classification. And after surgery, the average, the mean HK angle was six degree bars. So how about the uh, clinical uh, result of these patients? They compared the severe varsity and the mild varsity and uh, and they found that it was almost same. The satisfaction score of NISIT score was same between the severe virus cases and the mild virus cases. And the functional activity score after one year surgery is also the same. So it's meaning the similar clinical result, even though they have like a six degree virus. How about the survivor? It, although it is only a four years follow up, they reported no revision on the femoral tibial joint. This is a, a hospital name, eight hospital names, and the cases, 600 cases, 700 cases, and they have a good follow-up, like a 100% follow-up. They reported full revision due to the patellofemoral joint, but not for the femoral, femoral tibial joint. So it seems like even in our country uh, with uh, severe virus cases, uh, it, it, it seems to be safe, uh, at least in short time follow-up. But of course, it's just uh, only four years, we need a longer follow-up. So in summary, good long-term result of personalized alignment TK was reported from many countries. A new morphology varies among the cases. Uh, knee of Asian are more bars with smaller MPTA. The alignment after the KATK in Japan resulted in more bars, which means 45% uh, are more than three degree bars, and 50%, 15% are more than six degree bars after TKA. So far, no mechanical failure was reported up to four years follow-up in the Japanese Mars Center study. However, we need further follow-up and the safe zone should be discussed after that, so take as a take-home message, so far favorable, favorable long-term result of KTK reported. The, the final range will be 
plus minus previous six degrees. However, 15 of Japanese cases are more than six degree virus. And uh, no failure up to four years and further follow-up is needed. And again, clinical superiority is still unknown. Thank you for your attention. So our next speaker is going to be Gabriel Baron from uh, Santiago, Chile, uh, who's going to be talking about uh, uh, patellofemoral complications uh, with total knee arthroplasty. Well, excuse me for the delay. My name is Gabriel Baron. I come from Santiago, Chile. These are my disclosures, and this is the table that we'll, be, we'll see today. There are multiple factors associated to a proper alignment and kinematics of the tibia femoral, of the patellofemoral joint in total knee arthroplasty. There's a disagreement that um, the positioning of the implants are crucial for that purpose. Doug Dennis uh, described many years ago that we need to avoid increase the Q angle as it increases the risk of, of patella subluxation. So we need to avoid internal rotation and medialization of the femoral implants as well as of, of the tibial platform. We need to avoid a lateral placement of the patella because it trends to have an increased Q angle. We need to prefer a medial or a centralized position of the patella bottom. And we, and we need to have an adequate cut of the patella. It, it needs to lie parallel to anterior cortex of the patella. The axial alignment has been considered the lost alignment. And we see that most of the method that you use to balance the femur to get a good alignment on the patellofemoral joint are based on the axial alignment. It just not affects flexion stability and tibiofemoral kinematics. It also affects our, our patellofemoral kinematics and tracking and the knee alignment inflection. John Insall emphasized many years ago that we need to use constant landmarks to get a good alignment on the actual plane. The Whitesell line is not feasible always when we have trochlear dysplasia. So he recommended to use the anatomic transapicondylar axis or the surgical transapicondylar axis. So as most of 95% of the surgeons are using conventional instrumentation and using a posterior reference guide systems, we need to know that the posterior chondrial line is an average between three to six degrees internally rotated compared to the trans-epicondylar axis. So here's a few examples. This is a patient who have internal torsion of the femur. As you see, the lateral femoral condyle, condyle is in the anterior position in the axial and the sagittal plane, what is wrongly called hypoplastic lateral femoral condyle. This is the system that I used for 15 years. It's a Genesis 2. They may, maybe some of you will tell me this is very old, but the Reports of the registries is almost more than 95 to 97% at 15 years of survivorship. So we use a system of points like augments to increase the external rotation. And what we want to have is what Johnny and Norman Scott described, the grand piano feature that assure us that we are having a good external rotation of our femoral implant. So let's talk about a little bit about trochlear dysplasia. Uh, almost 17% of our patients have this problem. This is very linked to hip dysplasia. And many of these patients have previous surgeries such as osteotomies, mediopatellofemoral ligament reconstruction, or corrective osteotomies for valgus or varus deformities. There's internal torsion of the femur. Most of the patients have external rotation of the tibia. So there's a gross abnormality in terms of axial deformities in that patients. 
We need to recognize that deformity. And even now in these days, robotic surgery is not helpful because we need to make changes intraoperatively. Many of these patients, we try to anteriorize our femoral implants. So we need to not to compromise the posterior condylar offset, as we see here in this picture, that we have a problem with anteriorization. So increasing the external rotation also got its problems. It increases the medial flexion gap. As we increase the external rotation up on three degrees and using posterior reference guide systems, we will increase the size of the femur and an oversized femur could lead to a painful patellofemoral joint. And also we can have mismatch between the AP and the AP and the medial lateral uh, sizes of our implants that are on the shelf implants. The tibial rotation, maybe it's easier. Most of the surgeons try to use the middle third of the anterior tibial tuberosity as a reference. You can also use the acai line. You can use the anterior tibial border, or you can have a floating tibia that is very helpful in these plastic patients. Does innovative technology helps? Well, we have seen that robotic surgery and navigation are very helpful to achieve new alignment strategies. It's very good on the coronal and the sagittal plane, but yet there are no real advances in technology to optimize patellofemoral resurfacing. So just a question, when performing a TKA, do you always resurface, you never resurface, or you have selective resurfacing? So, for many years, we have, been the, we have seen the debate between resurfacing or not the patella. We have even have hard debates, even in politics and in religion, about what's better for each case. So when we see the trends in different countries, we see that almost in the United States, this is a study they are published in 2015, most, most, more than 95% of the patients had a patellar resurfacing. In contrast with Sweden or Norway, well, almost less than 10 to 5% of the patients have it. In United Kingdom and Australia, the relation is similar between 35 to 40% of the patients have a resurface patella. Now, in these days, these trends have changed slightly. In the United States, there are less patients who are receiving a patellar resurfacing and more patients are receiving a CR knee, as well as in, in, in Sweden and in England, there are more patients who have a patellar resurfacing. So when we see the different, thank you. So I guess that most of the people are doing selective resurfacing, so we'll touch this later. So when we see the whole cohort studies published before 2015, we see that in all the systematic reviews, resurfacing of the patella was extremely useful and decreased the revision rates, but they were inconclusive to show that less anterior knee pain on these patients or, or better satisfaction or outcomes in this group of patients. So as you said, as you, as you have seen, there are three strategies that we've seen, but for those who are choosing selective resurfacing, we must say there are few published data. The intraoperative surgeon's decision is based on cartilage status. Most of the times you, you choose if to resurface or not, depending on the wear of the patella. Also, there's some other factors like patients who have valgus knees, patients who had previous surgeries of the patella, obese patients, or patients with inflammatory arthropathy like rheumatoid arthritis. Francesco Venazzo states some years ago that the ability of the surgeon to assess articular cartilage in order to predict the outcome is doubtful, especially intraoperatively. So let's see what's happening in the last three years. These three publications came around in, uh, in the recent two years. The first is including 100,000 patients from the British Registry, and the second and the third are systematic reviews 
collecting 33 and 50 RCTs each. So the three of them have similar conclusions. Selectively resurfacing the patrola didn't result in a lower risk of revision compared with a preference for routinely patrola resurfacing. And on the other hand, patrola resurfacing was associated with a reduced risk of revision surgery, anterior knee pain, and complications. Also, we don't know the fate of the cartilage after a patient who has received a, a knee that is not resurfaced. So this has come from Japan, from Dr. Sato, uh, studying the patient after five years of a non-resurfaced knee using MMRI, and then found that the thickness of the cartilage decreased more than a half in the next five years of implantation. So we had some certainties about patellofemoral resurfacing. So again, an adequate femoral and tibial implant rotation is crucial to the alignment. There is an increased rate of postoperative anterior knee pain in obese and female patients. Cemented all polythripex dome patellofemoral implants have lower revision rates compared to other ones or non-cemented. There is unclear data that patella-friendly femoral implants would restore normal trochlear morphology or better outcomes. Most of the complications of patella-related resurfacing problems are, could be treated conservatively. And isolated patella component resurfacing in a revision setting never, never achieves similar outcomes as we have done in the primary setting. So let me show you this publication that I think is crucial, uh, published by Dr. Kaur from the Ross. Uh, Crawford uh, group from Melbourne, Australia. And they included 570,000 patients from the Australian registry. So they searched for primary constraint, um, primary constraint, resurfacing the patella or not, and revision rates. So they found that non-resurfaced PS knees had the highest revision rate from all of the patients of the groups followed by minimal constraint what CRs and UCs at 17 years. Also, they show that onlay patellas have lower revision rates compared to inlays and non-resurfaced. And as we see here in this table, all the overall patellofemoral complications that required a revision were higher in a non-resurfaced PSNE with 2.74%, followed by minimal, minimal constraint for, with a 1.6%, but the patients who have a non-resurface patella, sorry, they have less than 0.25% of revision. So when we compare this to Sweden, we see that 95% of the patients are receiving a CR knee, and almost 5% of the patients just receive a resurface patella. But surprisingly, in 2022, there was combined study from the Australian, Swedish, and American Joint Registry based on based in mainly in the revision setting. And they conclude that not using a patellar component increased the likelihood of a revision for patellar reasons. There's another study from a group on Simon Young in New Zealand. So they found that younger patients than 65 years, a non-resurface PS knee and lower Oxford knee score at six months were factors associated to a risk for an isolated patellar resurfacing as a revision setting. There's another study from the British Registry. They collect 840,000 patients with a 15 years of follow-up. 36 of these patients were resurfaced, and at 10 years, the revision rates were higher for the non-resurfaced group. Also, they, uh, they, they develop a predictive model when they found there's a higher risk of the revision for those patients who have a non-resurfaced patella. And also, there's a higher re-revision rate 
for those patients who are receiving an isolated patellar resurfacing compared that we have done this patellar resurfacing at the first attempt. The risk for secondary patellar resurfacing was 17% higher in PS compared to CRs. Well, some surgical considerations. There's no consensus on patellar aversion or subluxation at exposure if they could increase or not complications. We need to remove patellar osteophytes, divide the soft tissues, mainly those who are in re relationship with the quad tendon that are associated with Clank syndromes. And we can perform here at the end of the surgery be before positioning the patella a lateral facetectomy. The goal is to replace nearly similar thickness of the native patella. The average thickness of the patella in a male is 26 and 28 millimeters and between 23 to 24 millimeters in a female. But also we need to recognize the patella anatomy. There are so many shapes that we need to know how we need to do the cutting and there's no robotics that will help on that issue. We need to be parallel to the anterior patellar cortex. We need to avoid oblique or asymmetric cuts in the axial and in the sagittal plane. We can use specific jigs or you can do freehand. And the level of, of resection, we can choose between the chondroosseous junction that I prefer in most of my patients, or we need to be careful to choose the insertion of the quads and patellar tendon because it could lead to an oblique cut on the sagittal plane. There is still no strict consensus of the minimal residual thickness to prevent fracture or osteonecrosis. But Mayo Clinic published this year a study from David Luwal and Amar Pagnano, where they foc focus on the faith of 200 patients controlled with a group of normal patellas who have less than 19 millimeters of thickness of the patella pre-catch and 12 millimeters at the average of the remaining bone and they didn't show any higher incidence of fractures, complications, or osteonecrosis compared to the control group. So we need to medialize the patella two to three millimeters from the, of the patella bottom. It's prefer preferable to do first the lateral facetectomy and then position your patella. Also a superior placement would minimize patellar clank and catching in the intercondylar notch. And it's very helpful when you get a moderate patella baja. Lateral facetectomy, there are many studies that show that always is favorable is it releases the tension of the lateral retinaculum. Always check tracking in full range of motion. I'd like to use the no thumbs maneuver described by Gil Scuderi. If the patella subluxates laterally, you can deflate the tourniquet and check again. With these strategies, a lateral release is unfrequently as unlikely to, require it, to be required at the surgery. In maxima dislocation, when you got patients who do have suffered previous patellofemoral instability or have high tibial external rotation, you may consider amidalization anterior tibial tuberosity, but it's really rare to do that intraoperatively. So take home messages and summary. The most important factor to achieve an adequate patellofemoral tracking is a correct femoral and tibial axial alignment. If you choose a primary PSTKA, please, do always resurface the patella. So in the under under in under resurfaced, in the resurfaced primary minimal constraint and CR have lower revision rates related to patellofemoral complications, but they're relatively higher compared to resurface implants. And the unisolated revision of the patella component never achieves similar outcomes as if it has done done in a primary setting. Thank you very much. I would like to present Dr. Reha Tangdogan from Istanbul for soft tissue balancing in TKA.
thank you for the introduction. Uh, I will share my screen with you. All right. So uh, my topic uh, will be contemporary techniques in soft tissue balancing. So we've heard about alignment, and we heard about the patellofemoral joint, and now we will uh, discuss how we can balance our knees. So these are my uh, disclosures, and they might be relevant uh, to the topic of this presentation. Um, so we'll start first start with our poll. Um, so uh, we heard about alignment, but what about your favorite soft tissue balancing technique? Are you doing a conventional uh, TKA with mechanical alignment, measured resection, and soft tissue release that needed? Are you doing a gap balancing technique? Are you using an unrestricted kinematic alignment either with manual or digital aids and say that you don't need any uh, soft tissue balancing? Are you going for restricted kinematic alignment with digital aids? Or are you going for alignments, uh, functional alignment with robotics? So we have all these options that now we have. It, about 15 years ago, we only had few options, but now we know that uh, we have many options available to us. So let's take a look at uh, what we can do. Uh, as you can see that uh, most of our uh, attendees are using mechanical alignment and soft tissue balancing technique. So I think we will have a lively discussion at the end uh, about uh, which should be better. So here we go. Um, let's start with uh, conventional mechanical alignments and measured resection techniques. So the, pr the principles here are to perform the bone cuts perpendicular to the mechanical axis and then balance the ligaments after the final bone cuts. So you release your tight collateral zone capsule until you have equal symmetrical flexion and extension gaps. So uh, this usually requires increasing your poly thickness to compensate for the release to achieve a balanced knee. This also inevitably results in increased leg length. And this also may produce abnormal loads on the soft tissue sleeve, which might be a factor for the 20% unsatisfactory outcomes after total knee arthroplasty, as we heard before. And in the study by Bush, which is also, also published last year, uh, using modern techniques, we still see that about 50 to 89% of the uh, mechanically aligned knees require some form of ligament releases uh, to balance the knee. Um, what about gap balancing? Uh, well, this uh, in this technique, uh, we, we first cut the tibia perpendicular to the mechanical axis, and then the femoral cuts are guided by the ligament tension after osteophytes have been removed. So uh, the main difference in this technique is in the uh, femoral rotation. So you change your femoral rotation to balance your gaps. The pros and cons are here. Uh, the pros are you have better flexion gap stability, less condral liftoff, and no major ligament releases are needed. However, this technique is dependent on the accuracy of your tibial cut and the integrity of the collaterals. So if your collaterals are not uh, intact or they are insufficient, uh, they might guide you to wrong uh, alignment techniques. Also, during conventional techniques, they're subjective. Uh, the titration is difficult and instability is still a risk. This is a patient who underwent a needling of her MCL. She was a varus knee. And then uh, with this minor trauma, two days later, uh, you can see that the MCL is totally gone. And then she ha now has to be revised uh, to a more constrained implant. And we also know that there are worse patient reported outcomes in patients needing ligament releases. So uh, how about the new techniques? 
Well, we heard about the unrestricted climatic alignment. Here, you reject bone equal to the thickness of your implant, taking into account the two millimeter wear on the involved site. So accordingly, there are usually no ligament releases needed, and you can do this with either calipers or uh, digital aids. However, if ligament balance is needed for extreme deformities, then additional bone cuts should be made from the tibia. So cutting more from the tibia has some severe biomechanical consequences, as has been shown by uh, long-term RSA studies. And interestingly, this is a very recent paper by the Linda Suleiman and her group, uh, even if you're doing a pure resurfacing type kinematic alignment, you may not achieve uh, ligament balance goals without additional recuts. What does this mean? Uh, they looked at valgus knees and they simulated kinematic alignment. They saw that medial flexion space was uh, larger than the lateral side in about 40% of the cases if they just went for bony alignment. Similar for neutral or varus knees, medial flexion gap was larger than the lateral side even in varus knees. And if, if they went, looked at the severe virus knees, almost 60% of the patients had more than three millimeters uh, flexion imbalance. So if you just go for a bone cut and disregard your ligament balance, you, you can see that you will have problems. So if you look at the pros and cons of unrestricted climatic alignment, uh, we have the advantage of preservation of joint line obliquity and level and better patient-reported outcomes have been reported in designer series. However, in these uh, alignment strategies, extreme alignments are accepted and additional bone cuts are needed for soft tissue balance, especially in extreme cases. So uh, what has emerged now is uh, the technique uh, or the concept of functional alignment. Here, the ligament balance is achieved uh, by minor changes in the component position before the bone cuts. And medial and lateral side is measured independently, both in extension and in flexion, before you commit yourself to your bone cuts. Therefore, you can preserve your patient phenotype. You can uh, respect your boundaries, which you consider safe. And you can uh, verify your goals with trial components before doing uh, committing yourself to the final cementation of the implants. And then you can finally document your ligament laxity after cementation. Uh, so uh, we should also define our gap goals. Uh, we know that normal leaves have slightly more lateral laxity, and this is more apparent in flexion compared to extension. So instead of going for equal uh, flexion and extension gaps, most people now today would try to uh, accept a one millimeter or one and a half millimeter laxity on the lateral side, because we think that this is more physiological. And we know that the less than 1.5 difference in gaps may result in better outcomes. So the uh, concept of functional alignment has been uh, described by the uh, Lyon group. Uh, where the final HKA is between five degrees varus to three degrees of valgus, depending on the preoperative phenotype. You try to preserve the natural MPTA and up to six degrees of varus is acceptable. The joint line is preserved within three millimeters. You try to preserve the natural LDFA of the femur uh, with three degrees of varus to six degrees of valgus, depending on the phenotype. And the most important thing is the bone cuts are modified intraoperatively to balance the ligaments. And the goals are to have an equal medial or lateral gaps, probably a one millimeter lateral laxity is ac acceptable. 
So you can only achieve this with digital aids. No uh, surgeon is, is, is accurate to one millimeter using their eyes. So let's take a look at the patient. This is a typical 18-year-old uh, female patient with a virus alignment. Uh, so this is her gap balancing during surgery. You can dynamically check the medial and natural gaps uh, with the proposed implants in place. We can see that we have about two millimeter laxity on the medial side. And you, when you force the knee into varus, you can see that you can go up to four millimeters lateral laxity. And this becomes much more prominent uh, in flexion, as you can see, 5.5 millimeters lateral laxity. So the bars you see is the laxity. So by changing your uh, tibial component varus and then increasing your femoral component external rotation, you can easily balance the, these gaps before committing yourself to your bone cuts. And then you proximalize your tibial component a bit. Uh, we now have about 2.5 degrees virus on the tibia and three degrees external rotation on the femur. And you can see that we have balanced our knee without uh, doing any of the ligament releases before the bone cuts. So this is what it would, it would look like if you had got, gone, gone for a mechanical alignment. You can see that if you cut the bones at 90 degrees, you will have two millimeter laxity on the medial side and four on the lateral side, and this is increased in flexion. However, if you change your alignment to uh, at three degrees of varus uh, and then some external rotation, you can see that you can balance your gaps uh, nicely without having to do any kind of ligament release, as you can see here, but uh, virus and external rotation of femoral components. And your final alignment is like this. The patient had as, uh, uh, around 11 degrees of varus deformity preoperatively, and you change this to about three degrees of varus, which is within your safe boundaries. Um, so, uh, and this is what she looks like at the end of surgery. So uh, can you solve everything with this? Uh, I mean, are ligament releases never needed in robotics? Well, no. Ex uh, if you have an extreme deformity and ligament laxity, very rarely uh, you can need uh, additional ligament releases. We looked at our first 500 cases with robotics, and then uh, we found that uh, the uh, ligament releases was needed in about 2.8% uh, of the patients, and an insert larger than 11 millimeters was needed in about 3% of the patients. And this was uh, corroborated with other studies in the literature uh, of Clark uh, about, uh, and they found that uh, interestingly, ligament releases were needed mostly uh, in valgus knees uh, instead of the virus knees. So you can also do this with non-image based robotic systems. You can see the gaps here on the medial and lateral sides, and then you change your implants position to uh, an acceptable amount of virus. And in the end, you can have this graph where you can show nicely that you are within two millimeters uh, of medial and lateral laxity in, in your components. So uh, are all robotic systems the same? Uh, the patient reported outcomes are similar, but the robotic systems are not the same. Uh, so there's a difference in the component positions between different systems. So you should be uh, aware of this and be familiar with the system that you're using. How about the balancing force? because uh, you apply some force and you test uh, your ligament laxity intraoperatively with robotics. The thing is some surgeons are stronger than others. So uh, I might apply a, a valgus force and achieve four millimeters uh, opening while another surgeon while, might apply much more force and open six millimeter uh, opening. So how do we balance this? Well, there, has, there are several options for this. 
you have the mechanical tensors and the spacer blocks or, or the spoons that have been used classically. We have also these gap balancing measuring things and, and that are electronic or inflatable. And these are uh, balancing the force uh, used to, be, uh, to achieve your ligament balance. And then there are the pressure sensors uh, that have become popular. Uh, the, here you have this in, uh, trial uh, tibial in, uh, poly where uh, you can measure uh, the amount of pressure on both the medial and lateral side and less than 15 pounds of difference between the medials and lateral side is considered balanced. And Woodlet looked at a number of cases and saw that 35% of the knees without a sensor guide seemed to be unbalanced and the learning curve was not so high. However, uh, if you look at uh, this article uh, of, uh, uh, this is a systematic review of about uh, 27 articles, uh, although 60% of the knees were needed some additional balancing with sensors after conventional gap balancing, there were no improvements in clinical outcomes, range of motion or complications. So uh, the authors advised that uh, these uh, sensors used in complex cases and they might be valuable for those more complex patients. So my take home messages are, uh, in the conventional techniques, you, you do the bone cut first, then you do the soft tissue balancing later. Um, these gap balancing goals can be achieved accurately in mild to moderate de deformities without ligament releases using a robotic system or digital aids and functional alignment. And we know that better outcomes have been achieved in patients without releases. So if we can get away with not doing releases, uh, so much the better. And however, we still know, don't know the amount of force that is optimal that you use during ligament testing. And this needs to be standardized. Thank you for your attention. Uh, and uh, I give back uh, the word to our uh, moderators uh, for the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Reha. Um, Dan, do you want to start off with some questions? Well, I want to thank all the uh, presenters for some excellent talks. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, um, Ken and Reha, when you start getting into these more extreme uh, levels of varus, uh, in my world, we have a lot of obese patients that we like to add stems to. And it looks like on some of these x-rays, it would be difficult to add a stem to the component when you're in more than six degrees of varus. Uh, what is your approach with these obese patients where you want to add a stem? Do you alter the functional alignment or do you go for mechanical or what do you do in those situations? Um, if I have my restrictions of, of, of about four degrees of varus. So you can usually get away with a short stem, a short cemented stem in a four degree varus, if you accept that. But if I need a patient who would need a wedge or block, and then I would have to add the stem, I would go back to mechanical alignment, probably leave some two or three degrees of varus if the phenotype is something like that. But uh, the more extreme you go and uh, the more you need longer stems, of course, you need to revert back to mechanical. There's a very good, good. Yeah. For me, uh, we are not using a stem. Actually, in Japanese patients, we, luckily, we don't have so big patient. And if we have a big patient, I just do the mechanical alignment, I do the stem. But when I do the uh, uh, kinematic alignment, I, we picked up the patient uh, relatively small statue, and uh, we don't use them. 
Okay, so just to, to there's a couple of questions that have come in from the audience as the as the talks have gone on. I'm just going to go back in reverse order. Um, so how much valgus do people find is the limit for a primary TKA? You're talking about various in a lot of these cases, and how many people would put their implants in in valgus? Um, so I think James, you're asking me. Yeah. Uh, I I would still go for a zero degrees of valgus in a valgus knee. Uh, I, I would be very uncomfortable uh, with leaving these uh, patients in uh, additional valgus. So uh, my limits uh, would be zero degrees and I would differ from uh, Sebastian Lustig group on this one. I, I think valgus degrees is a, a not desirable uh, final result in TKA. And uh, personally, I use a mechanical alignment for a valgus knee and try to Slighted virus in virus phenotype, but never in valgus after TKA. Yeah, so that's my experience. But I think it's in valgus knees, I tend to put my tibia in at, at mechanical axis. But if, if possible, I'm trying to reconstruct the LDFA in my valgus knees as best I can, because if you get the LDFA correct and you get the, the tibia correct and uh, perpendicular, you often won't need to balance those knees very much more. I think it's more on the femoral side you make the mistake on the uh, in valgus knees than on the tibial side. Just a, just a question there again. One more question there for you, Reha. In terms of ligamentous laxity, you've got you know you get these patients who have extreme laxity. They've got you you've cut the tibia and the femur for exactly the cuts that you wanted them to be. You've cut nine millimeters off the femur. You've cut nine millimeters off the tibia. You're expecting to put the smallest poly back in there. And these patients are lax. So suddenly you're putting in an eight or a nine or a 10 poly in these patients with minimal cuts. How do you find balancing for these patients then? And how do you change your, your practice for those patients? Um, well, the good thing that I can do is I can decide on this before do, uh, committing to a cut. Uh, so uh, the, the robotic system that I use uh, has the implants in place virtually. And then I test ligament laxity. So if I see that I will have an extremely lax knee, I will just move up the tibial component proximally, do even two, three millimeter tibial cuts, just taking off the cartilage, uh, where I, I would not have to increase the leg length or would not have to in increase a larger poly. So uh, the system of, you know, if you are basing an image based system, uh, you have the advantage of uh, performing this before you do your bone cuts. Uh, sorry to, to interrupt, but I think that's a tricky question. Because I think the real answer is you need to detect before the surgery. So you have a patient with recurvatum or highly unstable, like those patients who are high valgus knees. You need to be prepared before. And you, you need to have a one level up of constraint in the OR. That's the issue because it's not about the bony cuts. If you got this kind of patient uh, and, and you got recurvatum growth that greater than 15 to 20 degrees, you will not be able to control that with a regular PS, TKA, or CR, or whatever primary constraint that you are using. You need to have a, C, a, v, a LCCK or even a hinge if you got a, if the medial structures are ruptured. So I think you need to check before uh, any kind of robotic or, or conventional instrumentation, you need to check before the surgery. Yeah, I think that is rare. I mean, you're talking about type 3 valgus knees with MCL insufficiency and hyperextension. Those would be the cases that you decide before. Uh, otherwise, uh, I don't think uh, you would have to do uh, an LCCK in primary cases uh, unless your MCL is not intact. I, I agree with you. But recurvatum is a common finding in some patients. I show that 17% of our patients had 
these plastic knees and hips. And those patients, mostly they trend to valgus, and many of them got between 10 to 15 degrees of record volume because the deformity. So I'm very cautious about that. So just a question for the rest of the panel. Everybody's talking about changes in different alignment philosophies. And the first talk we had was for patient satisfactions. And most of the background data that we see in the literature is for mechanical alignment previously on patient satisfaction. And based on your changes and practices, are you seeing differences in your patient satisfactions because you're changing your philosophies of how you're doing your knee? James, I, I like this argument. Uh, my question is, uh... Why 83% of the people with mechanical alignment are happy with their knee? So I don't want to serve the 83% of my patient if I change my surgery. So I try to understand if the alignment that works for 83% of my people does not work, if it, it is the cause of an AP patient. So, I mean, uh, the key point now, in my own opinion, is still the balancing and the stability of the knee. Because we remove the SEL, that is a major cause for mild instability. We remove the menisci, we change the anatomy of the knee. And so we need the envelope of the knee works well. If we leave an unstable knee, I like the presentation of Rhea, that at the end he was summarizing that he loves to be inside one, 1.5 millimeters discrepancy between the median and lateral. So the answer, in my own opinion, is a stable knee first in your hand. Then if you use a mechanical or slightly virus knee, it's okay, but a stable knee. Has anybody else got any views on how they're seeing changes in their patient satisfactions? I can tell a few things. Uh, there, there. I think uh, I think there are two things that we have to uh, look at. Uh, forgotten joint scores, I, th I think, are very important. So there's a very nice study by Clark they did uh, the same uh, group did mechanical alignment and uh, functional alignment using the same robotic system same everything is the same the difference is just the functional alignment and they use robotics in both cases and they found that the functional uh, forgotten joint scores were better in the functional alignment group same with me i had patients uh, who had mechanically aligned knees pre performed earlier and i'm doing the other knee with robotics they say this knee is much more stable, and I feel more secure with uh, with that. So I think we will start seeing uh, a, a better outcome. It's not just a robot; huh? it's the combination of correct alignment and correct ligament balance. I, I want to add something, maybe speaky. Uh, I think that we are since the publication of Bob Byrne, man, maybe 1998, 1990, I think, about 19% of patients are unsatisfied with trying to check to chase for those patients to, to improve our techniques where many surgeons doing that. We are using robotic, we change the way of doing the implants, PS versus CRs, and there's still 10% of the patients that are not getting the, what, they, what they want. And I was just to ask, maybe they, we will never get to them because we are humans and there's human nature. And we see there's epidemic on opioid abuse in the United States, also in my country. There's many patients that there are severe deformities that are not getting to surgery after the pandemics. So I think that we need to have, the, as Bruno said, the more stable knee. We can use PS or CRs or the best, they got similar results. But the most important is to use the best implant that fits in your hands. Most of us are doing different restrictions, different surgeries, different constraints because of our, because our education or where we did our fellowships. So we need to be stick 
to one implant, to one instrumentation, not pick one for each case because this is delectable for the patients. That's my only thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I agree. Because uh, as Bruno presented, uh, the special satisfaction is a very much factorial uh, thing. So many, many factors are involved and uh, alignment technique is one of them. So I feel the alignment, changing alignment technique may improve a little bit, but because a lot of things, you know, patient selection and, uh, and the psychological things, uh, all, all together, so it is very difficult to prove the uh, differences just only, just only by the alignment technique. So the patient satisfaction is a kind of black box. But I, I want to point fine. out that I think, I think we're focused on alignment because it's something we can measure. But soft tissue balancing and patient selection, as Bruno talked about, uh, those things may be more important in increasing our satisfaction rate. Uh, than a few degrees one way or the other. Um, but but again, all these studies are being done because we can measure alignment easily, but uh, there's a lot of things that are difficult to measure that may be more important uh, than alignment. Yeah. I, I, I think that the combination of all the talks that you've heard this evening are actually what is relevant. It's a combination of alignment. It's really paying a lot of attention to soft tissue balancing. And Gabriel's talk on patellofemoral tracking and how you get your patellofemoral joint is for me the whole, the soul of the knee. So I spend a lot of time paying as much attention as I can to getting my patella to, to, to track and do what I want it to do as much as I do with all the other philosophies. So it's something that's not necessarily as well understood. And I thought Gabriel's description of it was really very good. Okay, so we're coming to the close of the webinar. We're getting up to 10 past six. I, I can see that there are a lot of other questions that are coming up and hopefully maybe we will be able to answer them by email or by response because the questions are really getting, there's a lot of them starting to come up, and I don't think we're going to get to them to the end, before the end of this session. So, or uh, come to the ESCA Congress or the ISACUS Congress. Come to the ESCA Congress. Learn a lot more about these things. That's exactly where we're going now. So I'm going to just <laughs> to, uh, I'm just going to share some sl slides. Uh, here we go. Just a reminder to everybody to please fill in your survey at the end of the webinar so you can get your certificate for your CME points. Uh, and they'll be sent on to you afterwards in your ESCA profile in, uh, by uh, the 28th of February. Uh, again, a brief reminder to everybody that uh, the ESCA Congress in Milan is the 8th to the 10th of May and early bird registration is closing in the, near in the ne next couple of days. Uh, and again, Dan, let you talk about ASACOS. Yeah, so ASACOS, again, we're having a knee arthroplasty forum in Japan in uh, end of October of this year. And then the ISACAS uh, Congress will be in 2025 in Munich, Germany. So thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you very much to the ESCA and ISACAS team for putting this uh, these talks together. And I look forward to meeting most of you uh, in Milan or potentially in Munich next year. <laughs>